Good evening. Um, so I was delighted to see this topic coming up um, next to my name uh, on the agenda, um, because what I always enjoy is a topic where I'm not entirely clear um, what the subject is. Um, so we're going to be thinking about the Christian perspective on social justice. And of course, the first thing that we have to do is figure out, actually, what does social justice mean in the first place? Um, so I went away and, and looked it up. Um, and the best definition that I can find, or the one that I think we can work with, is that social justice is a measurement. So we have a look at society, and we look at how well the good things are distributed, how fairly the good things are distributed. And if people, on the whole, have equal access, or close to equal access, to health, to wealth, to opportunity, to safety, to power, to jobs, to those good things then we say that that society is just. And if those things aren't well distributed, if they're concentrated, if there are bars to entry, if access is different for different groups of people, then we say that there is little social justice. So that's the definition that we're going to be working with. Now, sometimes it's very easy for us to form an opinion, right? So we could look at, for example, nothing against them, but England in the 12th century. And if we were to look at 12th century England, what would we see? Well... The feudal system is in full effect, right, in the 12th century. Very, very clear structure. You've got the king and the nobles, and they're the ruling class. And they keep the wealth, and they keep the power. And therefore, they live in better conditions. And they had the best life expectancy that you could get before modern medicine. And then there was a whole other group of people who were the serfs, the poor people, and they had basically nothing. They had what the ruling class allowed them to have. They didn't own their house. They didn't own their land. They went out and worked for the benefit of the baron. And actually, they had no protection if their local lord decided to take their possessions or decided to take their family members into service. And they lived in very poor conditions. And they had very low life expectancy. So that's very easy, right? We can look at that and we can say, no, look, this is a very unjust society. Social justice was not broad in 12th century England. And there might be countries or areas that we could look at today, um, and we might, depending on how cynical we're feeling, say that very much the same conditions pertain. There's a ruling class, and they have everything they want, and then there's everyone else, and they just get by with what they're allowed. But in general, modern societies are a lot more complicated than medieval England. It's not actually simple to talk about access to jobs. In most modern societies, for example, there's a hundred different jobs with a hundred different pathways. And it is true to say that access to all of them isn't equally available to everyone, but actually it's not the same people who have the advantages for all of them. Not anymore. So these things are, are quite complicated now. Forming an assessment of social justice in society is too big a question for me to deal with. So I'm going to do what I always do when I run into a question that's too big for me to deal with. I'm going to chip a bit off, narrow the focus down, and we're going to think about a smaller bit. And hopefully, that's going to give us a grip on the whole thing. So that's what I'm planning to do. Hopefully, I can bring at least most of you along with me. So we're going to think about a smaller question of social justice, and we're going to apply the Bible to it. This is an unashamedly Christian perspective on it. There are going to be at least six uh, Bible verses referenced this evening. Um, if I forget one, please pick me up. 
Um, and hopefully that's going to give us a framework to think about all of the other questions. So we are going to come back to social justice as a broad topic at the end, but first we're just going to deal with one. And what I'd like to think about this evening as that sort of way in, that gateway issue, is poverty. It's an issue that's been in the news over the past year or two. The pandemic, obviously, has interfered with lots of aspects of society. It's interfered with people's ability to do their jobs. We had furlough. That had to be invented. That wasn't a thing, right? You had to pay people not to work. Because otherwise, they'd have been plunged into poverty. They couldn't go out and do their job. It's an issue that has become very political. And we need to be careful about how we talk about it. And I'm sure that that's um, something we will all have on our mind. Um, so, um, make sure this is on. Yes. So, three questions. One global, one national, uh, and one very, very local. Um, biased by what stats uh, my researcher was able to find for me. My glamorous researcher, I'm sorry. Um, things for you to talk about um, at your tables, if you would. One thing I should say before, before we start, um, the UK poverty line is a slightly peculiar thing. Um, so very broadly, the idea is if you earn, uh, if your household income is less than 60% of the average, then you're below the poverty line in the UK. Um, but it is adjusted depending on what type of household you are. So the, the poverty line is different for a single person versus two people with young children and, and things like that. So it does adjust. So when we're looking at um, uh, what percentage of UK households' income is below the poverty line, you don't have to worry about, well, if there's just a single earner, then they're less likely. It's, it doesn't work like that. It adjusts to take account of what the household is. Does that make sense? Perfect. Okay, so if you could have a chat around your tables, um, and we will come back in a second and think about these. Okay, I definitely heard the phrase, he wouldn't be asking if it wasn't surprisingly high, uh, <laughs> mentioned at least once. Does anyone want to hazard a guess? What percentage of people globally live on less than $10 a day? 75 Gosh, uh, no, that's actually higher than, than the, the thing. It's two-thirds, two um, which I found, yeah, I thought was quite high uh, when I looked at it, although clearly not 75%. I, and there are some places, to be fair, where $10 a day is not uncomfortable. It's, you know, it's, it's, not, um, it's not a comfortable income in most places, but it's, you know, it's, there are some places in the world where it's not desperately uncomfortable. Um, the global standard for extreme poverty, um, which I didn't put on the side, is $1.90 per day. Um, that is extreme poverty wherever in the world you live. Um, and 10% of the world's population is below that line. Maybe that was the one that I should have gone with. Um, in March 2020, which is where my numbers are from, percentage of UK households that are below the poverty line was 20%, or 17.4. Um, and in Letchworth, the percentage of school children that qualify for free school meals, you might know this was obviously in the news quite a lot um, over the pandemic, the national average is 20%, uh, so one-fifth of children. Um, in Letchworth, it's a third. And of course, those last two numbers um, are both pre-pandemic. Um, the... Um, 
I forget who it was. But, but anyway, the estimate um, that I've seen is that something like um, um, uh, 90 million more people will have been pushed into poverty during, um, during the pandemic. So we should expect that those numbers have gone up. And they're tremendously high in the first place, I think. On the local level, again, in, in February to April this year, um, the local food banks, and this is just official food banks, this isn't counting you know, the trolleys that you see in, in Morrison's where people um, make voluntary donations and Sainsbury's, other supermarkets are available. That they helped about 900 people across Letchworth, Hitchin and Bulldog, the, just the official food banks, just in three months. Those are massive numbers, but it, it's important we understand them because without them, we lose perspective because we live in what is generally a pretty well-off area, in what is generally a pretty well-off country. And so we forget that even here, even among our neighbours, even among our friends, possibly, poverty is a serious problem. So let's get our cards on the table. We make excuses about this. We make excuses not to deal with it. And actually, one of those problems is that we lose perspective. The other one is that actually we feel like we're not all that well off ourselves. So it's probably not our problem to solve. Tax the billionaires. But actually, when you look at it locally, when you look at it nationally, when you look at it globally, I hope it does become obvious. We're not well off by comparison to our neighbours, maybe. We're certainly not well off by comparison to Elon Musk. But most of us, maybe not all of us, but most of us, are certainly well off compared to the 10% of the world's population that's living on $1.90 a day. So there is something we could do. So, okay, we know there's a problem, and hopefully you agree that um, it's a problem that we could do something about as individuals and as a church. So the next step is to think about whether or not we should do anything about it. We could, but should we? Should it matter to us? And my starting point, because obviously this would be very short otherwise, is, well, yes. Yes, we should. We should be looking to help the poor. We should be trying to do something about poverty, it's no exaggeration to say that I could have had my pick from 50 different verses to put up here, which are direct commands to do charity uh, from the Bible. I want to highlight these two. The verse on the left of the screen, um, I think most of you will recognize, this is Jesus speaking. He's asked which of the commandments is the greatest, and he answers with the greatest. Love the Lord your God. But then he volunteers another one. The second greatest commandment, love your neighbour as yourself. There is no commandment greater than those two. And then in John's first letter, uh, on the right of the screen, he defines love as looking after people's material needs. Verse 17, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? So if we love people... We're going to use our material possessions to help with needs that we can identify. That's my starting position. And I think it's very difficult to look at those verses and decide that there's nothing we should be doing about poverty. That we should just go home comfortable that it exists and it's not our problem. Somebody else can solve it. If we genuinely love people as Jesus loved people, if we love people as Jesus commanded us to love people, then how can we see them in poverty and choose not to do anything. I think that's a difficult argument to run. So I hope we can all agree 
that the answer to the question about whether we should do anything at all is yes. We should see this injustice in society and we should address it. But just because we all agree we ought to be doing something, that doesn't mean that we won't have any concerns or other considerations that we need to take into account if we're going to get to a full answer. So step one, can we identify a problem that we should do something about? I think we've cleared that hurdle. Yes, we should. Step two, what are the other issues that are at play here and what are the other things that we need to think about in order to decide what to do and how much? Now, I'm not talking about the practical level here. That's going to be well beyond uh, what we can cover this evening. Um, But here are some of the big questions that I think we need to talk about. It's very easy to talk about poverty as a headline issue, but who's poverty? And actually, when we're going and working with people in poverty, what should be our key priority? What should be the important thing there? And then finally, how important a part of our lives should social action be? If we're going to go and do this work, if we agree that poverty is something we should address, is this a top priority? Is it a low priority? How are we fitting that in with the rest of our Christian lives and with the rest of our church priorities? So those are some um, big questions, and I'd like you to have a chat about those around your table. If you go off on tangents, don't worry. Uh, I think we won't be asking um, any personal questions when we come back, Um, but I think it's useful that you start trying to unpack some of these um, before I start laying out um, what I think um, are some guiding principles um, that we can all take away with us. Thanks. All right. So, with no obligation, uh, because I realise potentially it's a little bit confrontational, because I know what I'm going to say, and and I'm going to say it either way. Um, Does anybody have anything that they would like to sort of throw out, or should we move on? Yeah. Yes. 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 So, uh, so the point being made there is that the uh, verse that I pulled up uh, from 1 John, um, if anybody has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, the brethren, um, that that is specifically a reference to Christians. And I agree, it absolutely is. Um, and in fact, that's the first question that we're going to talk about. Whose poverty should we be concerned about? And there's no getting away from the fact that if you look through the Bible um, and you look for all of the references um, to charity, to looking out for other people's needs, to taking care of um, people's material well-being, um, you will find that quite a lot of them, particularly in the New Testament, um, are to the local church, the people within the church community, and they're to missionaries or believers from other church communities. That is absolutely true. So the examples that we see in Acts, the examples that we see in Timothy um, of the church doing charity are very expressly to looking after widows within the church community. So it is possible, if you read those references first and then go back and look at all of the other references, particularly in the Old Testament, to looking out for the poor, if you've got that in your head, you can think to yourself, well, this is only ever about looking after God's people. 
you might think of Paul on the missionary journeys being supported by the churches um, during the times when he wasn't working. You might, of course, think of Philippians uh, and Paul being supported when he's in prison. I've been hearing about that recently. And obviously, it's fair. Of course, we should be supporting the poor within our church. Of course, we should be supporting missionaries. Again, you've heard that recently. But I don't think it's fair to say that the Bible tells us we should only look out for those people. Winding the clock all the way back, uh, when God's law was first given, he gave them this command here. When you harvest your field or you um, take the harvest from your vineyard, don't take everything. Leave some of it. Don't sweat the asset, uh, to use the modern business term. Don't wring every last drop out of it. Leave some of it there. Leave them for the poor, and okay, if you want to read that as specifically the poor of Israel, that's fine with me. But leave it for the foreigner, or leave it for the sojourner. Leave it for the people who are living among you, but are not you. Leave it for the people in your community who are not God's people. That's baked in right from the start. If you think that reference is a bit dated, uh, here's one uh, a bit more recent from uh, his letter to the Galatian church. Paul says we should do good to all people. Yes, especially to those who belong to the family of believers, but not exclusively to those who belong to the family of believers. Yeah? So as Christians and as a church, when we think about what we're doing as charity or as acts of mercy... Yes, absolutely, we must be looking out for our fellow believers. We must be doing things especially for our fellow believers, but not just for them. We should be looking to our wider community as well. So actually, when we're thinking about what should be our key priority for people in poverty, we're really dealing with two groups of people. What should be our key priority for a Christian who has a material need And what should be our key priority for a non-Christian who has a material need? And I think those two things are slightly different. For a Christian who has a need, we should be looking to address that need. All of the New Testament passages uh, that I mentioned earlier, Timothy and Acts and and so on, uh, and indeed 1 John, are all about spotting a need that exists within our congregation, uh, that exists within the family of faith, and dealing with it. When people don't have the ability to support themselves, the church members who have a little more are able to step in and help out. For a non-Christian who has a need, who is in poverty, I think we have to stop here and we have to acknowledge that our main priority for a non-Christian in poverty is the same as our main priority for a non-Christian in wealth, which is that they hear God's word and that they come to faith. Because, yes, in this life, poverty is a really significant problem, not just worldwide, not even just nationally, but here and now, in North Hearts, in our communities, perhaps among our friends. But sin's a bigger problem. So when Jesus commands us to love one another as he loves us, yes, that does mean that we should be doing something about the physical needs or the poverty of the non-believer but we mustn't get so focused on that that we forget their spiritual need. As Paul says in Romans, uh, and I didn't put this one on the screen, whatever our troubles are in this life, even the harsh realities of extreme poverty, and that's not an easy thing to say, but even those pale into insignificance when you think about what's waiting, the glories that are waiting for a Christian in the life to come. 
So that has to be our main priority. We have to be dealing um, with the non-Christian. We have to be um, addressing their poverty, but also addressing sin. They have to be hearing the message. And that's where we come to the third question, which in a lot of ways is where I started when I started preparing for this talk. Jesus was very clear when he left his disciples that he wanted his believers to go and make disciples of all nations. That's the great commission. We are to evangelize. That's our main mission. We have to go out. We have to tell the good news. We have to enable people to be reconciled to God, the God who made them, the God who loves them, but who will punish their rebellion. But equally, and hopefully we're all agreed by this point in proceedings, we should be doing something about a social injustice like poverty, not just within the church community, but in the wider community as well. And so this is where we run into a problem, because we've got two things, and we have to somehow hold them together. To put it another way, in a world where we've only got so much time, and we've only got so much money, and we've only got so many willing people, how much of our resource should we be spending on telling people the gospel, and how much should we be spending on social activity, in this case, addressing poverty? That's a question that people have spent a lot of time talking about. There are lots of different views out there um, at both extremes. There are people who will tell you it should be all social action and no gospel proclamation. Those people are wrong. There are people who will tell you it should be all gospel proclamation and no action. And I hope you'll agree with me at this point that those people are wrong too. But where do we sit on that spectrum in the middle? Well, sadly, there isn't a passage anywhere in the Bible that tells us exactly what percentage uh, we should be spending. It felt like it should be in Colossians. It's not there. But actually, I think the fact that there isn't a specific passage is sort of part of the answer. Look at this passage from Psalm 146. Uh, He, he is God, gives food to the hungry. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow. It's not that God prefers the poor. It's not that God considers people in poverty to be better than others. But ultimately, what's led to poverty is sin. When God made the world, there was sufficient for everybody. But we don't distribute those things equally. Ultimately, in any situation you look at, if you trace it back far enough, what you'll find is greed. What you'll find is somebody who has more than they need who doesn't want to share. Now, that might be a group of people, it might be one individual, it might be a very complicated issue, it might be a very simple one. But when you strip it all back, that's what you'll find. You'll find greed and you'll find sin. Ultimately, when God comes to judge the earth, he'll end sin. He'll end exploitation. He'll end imbalance. Because those are the consequences of sin. That's the character of God. And that's why we say that God gives food to the hungry. God watches over the foreigner because he will address imbalance. If you look at the places where the church is growing in 2021 and you look at a heat map uh, of extreme poverty or poverty, they look very, very similar. India, China, West Africa, plenty of other places like that, places where there is this poverty, places where people can see the reality 
the message of the Bible strikes an immediate chord in those places because God will end injustice and people understand what injustice feels like. So when we talk about being charitable, when we talk about taking the cause of poverty into our hearts and, and into the heart of our church, making it something that we do corporately, that we care about corporately, we're not just talking about obeying commands, although there are plenty of them. We're also talking about behaving like God. We're talking about behaving as Jesus did when he ate with the tax collectors and the cripples. We're talking about being charitable. Actually, we're talking about trying to be more like Jesus. So it shouldn't surprise us that Paul doesn't give us a specific balance between charity and gospel outreach, because he also didn't give us a specific balance between gospel outreach and soberness, or gospel outreach and faithfulness, or gospel outreach and sexual self-control. Because living as disciples of Jesus means trying to be more like Jesus. It means we should be trying to cultivate and promote attitudes and behaviours in ourselves that God thinks are good. It means that we should be seeking the mind of God, praying for those attitudes and behaviours in ourselves. And so when we sit here, and with apologies to my profession, we try to over-lawyer it. We're looking for the exact command about exactly how much time we should take and uh, actually where it's in conflict. Well, no. No, we shouldn't do that. We know that God thinks this is good. We know that we're commanded to do it. We know that Jesus did it. So we shouldn't be looking for exactly how to resolve it. We should be praying that God reveals these needs to us. We should be praying that God gives us the means to help. We should be seeking out the people within the church who have the gift that's needed to do this work, who have the gifts to go to the poor, to go identify in local communities things which need to happen that we're not currently doing. And we should be giving them the backing that they need with our time and with our money. That's what we should do. And although time and money that we spend on social action is going to be time and money that we don't necessarily spend on straight evangelism, I'd actually argue it can contribute to our evangelism as well. Time and again in the Bible, God commands his people to live differently. God commands his people to live as a light to the world, to show people a reflection of God's love as part of our witness. The New Testament writers regularly mention that our godly behaviour adorns the gospel as we preach it, that it makes it attractive. And actually that it can be a problem if we're just saying the words, but we're not living the life. It can be very difficult for people to listen to us. If we come across somebody who's drowning, we don't tell him about his need for Jesus until we've lifted him out of the sea. Now let me be clear, I'm not saying we have to uh, do charity, address poverty, in order to earn the right to evangelise. I'm certainly not saying that doing charity counts as evangelism on its own, and we should stop preaching. Our commission is clear, we must preach the word, in season and out of season. The message itself is important, and that justifies us preaching it. That's how important it is. We don't have to do anything more, but we should. When we're behaving in ways that aren't godly, that does undermine our preaching. If we as a church were 
um, you know, okay with bad behaviour, we wouldn't be surprised if our outreach ran into some obstacles from time to time. We wouldn't be surprised if people called us on it and said, you're not living the way that you're telling us to live. But it just doesn't seem to line up for us the same way uh, when we think about the call to social action. We seem to think that we can leave that. We have an opportunity to go out and do something that God commands, that reflects God's character, and actually that society at large would recognise as a positive thing in a world where we're not necessarily in step with everything that society would want from us, this is one. And for whatever reason, that's an opportunity that largely, not just us here in Christchurch, but the church in, in this country, largely we leave that on the table. We just leave it there. So let me sum up on poverty, um, and then we'll come back to social justice um, before we finish. So at the root of all of this, um, the command is to love others. That's the second greatest commandment, straight out of Jesus' mouth. So if we love people, then we will help them to address their needs. We must. We must feel bad if people are in a bad position. That does mean their biggest need, of course, which is their need for the gospel. But it also means that where they are living in injustice, where they're living in poverty, we should be helping them to address that need as well. This is not just a command for people in need within the church. Yes, of course, we should be helping people within the church who need help. Yes, of course, we should be helping uh, fellow Christians, missionaries and other organisations, by the way. But since the very beginning, Charity to people who aren't part of God's people has been baked in. That's not something that we tacked on later. That's right there from Leviticus. And it's been that way because God opposes sin. Poverty is something that sin has created. Poverty is a result of greed. So if we're serious about wanting to be like Jesus, if we're serious about reflecting God's character, then that's something we'll want to do as well. And although it might from time to time mean taking resources away from other activities, particularly pure outreach, if we're showing God's character to the world, if we're being consistent in how we present God's love, then that's not an either-or. Our evangelism's going to benefit if we're really out there showing God's character and behaving like Jesus. So I said that we were going to use poverty as a, as a worked example, um, and That's where I end up, uh, my my bullet point there, my framework. So if we've worked these things through, hopefully this is something we can look at on any issue in the topic of social justice. So again, social justice is about when good things aren't distributed fairly within a society. So poverty is when wealth is not distributed fairly within a society. But we could think about other things. So we could think about opportunities aren't distributed fairly, or jobs aren't distributed fairly, or access to education isn't distributed fairly. And we could think about what we mean by unfair. So we could think about where they're not distributed because of racial differences. We could think about where they're not distributed because of background. So social mobility. Can people from a background that doesn't traditionally go into a particular uh, form of education, can they go or are they blocked from going? Those sorts of questions. So we're going to have a think about um, some other issues. Um, These are just examples. Um, You're very welcome to to talk about any others that you can think of. But one thing to know 
um, before you dive in, is when we look at the Old Testament and we see the word poor, and this was news to me, um, there were various, this part wasn't news, there were various possible words that could be translated as poor. What I didn't know is that the most common word that's translated as poor, by quite a wide margin, actually, um, in the Old Testament passages, has nothing to do with money at all. It doesn't mean poor as the opposite of rich. It means poor in the sense of helpless. Poor as in wretched. So I've been reading those verses again, and I've been using the word marginalised or helpless instead of the word poor, because when I hear poor, I think of money. In the New Testament, poor more often means poor like a beggar. So it is talking about money as well as a lack of power. But in the Old Testament specifically, um, it's talking about help. It's talking about ability to to act um, rather than necessarily money. Um, So here are our social justice issues. And what I'd like you to do um, is around your tables, just have a chat, pick one, pick something else, um, and just see if you can work through that framework that we talked about um, with... um, with the various priorities and whether that gives you a view um, on what we should be doing, if we should be doing anything, who we should be doing it for, and so on. Um, And then we'll wrap up. So I hope that that was um, helpful. I hope that gave you a way to address some of these issues. I'm hoping that this is a, a beginning of a conversation, obviously, rather than, um, rather than the end of one. Um, these are complicated issues. There's an awful lot going on with them, and certainly I don't claim to have any of the answers or all of the answers. Um, but I hope it at least gives us a way to start thinking about these things. Our first question is, is this something we should do something about? And clearly there are going to be some issues where we are out of step with what the world thinks. And on those, of course, God's will must be sovereign in our lives, in our church. Social justice is not something that we should ever put in front of the gospel. When Jesus says the second greatest commandment is to love our neighbour, the first is to love God, above all things. We need to be clear. But on most of these issues, the biblical perspective broadly does line up with the societal one. People are created equal. If they're treated differently according to their race, if they're treated differently according to their social background, society would call that an issue of social justice. We probably just call it an issue of sin. If you track it all the way back, what you end up finding is somebody who could solve the problem, but they'd have to take a step down in order to reach those people up. They'd have to take a hit in order to make sure that other people have the same access that they do. And they don't, because we're fallen people, we're sinful people. If we love people, not just in the church, but people at large, then we're not going to want to see them treated unfairly. If we're chasing after God's character, then we will oppose injustice. If we're modelling God's character in that way, if we're becoming more like Jesus in that way, just as in every other way, It is going to help our evangelism. It's going to help our credibility. It's going to make us better witnesses. And so hopefully we can think about our approach to these social justice issues through that lens. Ultimately, we know we're not going to make everything perfect. That's not realistic. There was um, a movement called the Social Gospel some time ago which was trying to do exactly that. 
Um, but that's not what we're doing here. We know that the world is fallen. We know that until Jesus comes again and makes everything new, we will never see a truly just society. We know that. That's not the goal. Our goal is to reflect God, to show his love to society, and social action is one way that we can do that. Our goal is to do what we know God wants of us, what he's commanded us to do, and social action is one of those things. Our goal is to be more like Jesus, and social action is one of the ways in which we do it. It does sound simple when we say it like that, but by and large, we're not very good at it, not us here necessarily, but modern Christians as a whole in the UK. The cool table over at the back won't remember this, they're not old enough, but uh, it, with limited exceptions, it used to be illegal. It used to be illegal to open a shop on a Sunday. Believe that or not, I remember it just about. Um, and I remember the church mobilizing really effectively when the government first started talking about changing the law. In the end, of course, all it did was buy time and the law ended up being changed. But they did it. We did it. The church mobilized. The church lobbied. The church prevented that law being changed, at least for a period of time. Perhaps you can think of other examples um, that are more recent, uh, where the church has flexed its political muscles. The church has got involved in society to try and shape the way that society goes. And I'm not saying that's wrong, by the way. We should do that. It gives me hope. Actually, if we're able to get involved like that on those issues, well, then maybe one day we'll mobilise the church on systemic racism or on social mobility or on extreme poverty. Maybe one day the church will do that on a nationwide basis. But first, far, far easier for us to take steps locally in our own communities. These problems are big. They're difficult to solve, and maybe us in this room are not going to be able to address systemic racism uh, worldwide. But we've got to do something, because if we don't do anything, then nothing's going to happen. Let me leave you uh, with the verses that have been going around my head um, for the embarrassingly long amount of time that I've been researching this topic. Um, I'm taking my life in my hands by mentoring Proverbs 31 uh, with my wife in the room. Um, We tend to start, though, at verse 10 whenever we look at Proverbs 31, uh, and I would like to show you verses 8 and 9. Perhaps we could have just saved ourselves an hour uh, and put this up at the start. This is um, God's command through the psalmist. uh, I'm sorry, through... um, Proverbs to his people. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Speak up for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor, the marginalized. Defend the rights of the needy.